Good morning, everyone. Welcome to YesFM and the Women's Voices Program with Kath Kovac. Hope you're all having a good day today. Uh, so this morning I am going to be speaking with Catherine Bell from Braidwood. And Catherine I met a few years ago at a business um, planning workshop um, in Canberra. And at that time Catherine told me about a... Um, a uh, funeral kind of um, business that she was uh, working on. And I always thought that it sounded quite fascinating. And then so Catherine agreed to come on to my list of women speakers to come on to the radio. Um, And so thank you for joining us, Catherine. How are you today? I am very, very well, Kath. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. That is awesome. So today, um, you know, we like to say on this uh, show that nothing is taboo and we've talked about plenty of... um, of subjects that don't get talked about very often. And um, so when I said to Catherine, uh, you know, what would you like to talk about? She's like, let's talk about death and dying. (laughs) And I'm like, great, that's great. Because those sorts of things, death and dying, they're not really um, talked about enough, are they, Catherine, do you think? Not at all. We definitely leave these conversations to the moment where we need to have decisions made, which is too late. In, um, it's a very stressful time and if we haven't had a consideration of it in advance, um, we're often having to make decisions on the fly or in a hurry and so when it comes to funerals, this often means spending a lot more money than we need to or creating ceremonies that don't actually feel meaningful for us um, but it can be months, years afterwards that we realise, oh, that just that wasn't right. It didn't need to be that way. Mm, that time, it's a very strange time, isn't it? Uh, I experienced that with my dad when he died a few years ago, that time sort of goes slowly and quickly at the same time. And and you don't, unless unless things are kind of planned and worked out before, you don't really know what you're, what you're doing and you're kind of relying on other people a lot, isn't it? Because you you know, experiencing grief and and sadness and all those things and trying to find space in that for, for instance, you know, organising uh, the nuts and bolts of a funeral. Um, it kind of, I suppose it has to sort of put that grief on hold, but at the same time it's really difficult to sort of do that. So you're kind of operating in a bit of a haze. Yeah, that's right. You sort of go onto this autopilot um, mode of, um, right, what's the next thing on my list that I need to do, um, rather than actually experiencing the moment. So one of the um, things that I love to do is talk about death and dying, because if we have these challenging conversations sooner, when our time comes, we're better equipped to to handle it, whether that's supporting a loved one or um, someone we need to support. Um, if even if it's a complex relationship or whether it's um, letting people know what we need for our own um, end of life. And and I, I specifically say end of life rather than death because there is a, the, the period of time before we die, um, if we're lucky enough to make it to old age in pretty good condition, um, you know, the time will come. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no getting out of this alive. Um, so, what are you going to do um, if you start to lose your your marbles and uh, and you're deemed unable to make decisions for yourself? We can have an advanced care directive um, set out in advance. We can talk to our families and we can say, if I am not able to make decisions at the end of life, these are the important things you need to know. And there's lots of resources out there to help us uh, to, to get those uh, conversations happening and started and to, to put those preparations in space because a lot of a lot of it is where do I even start? I don't even know what I don't know. I don't know um, what might be the things I'd have to make decisions about. So um, with the funeral home tender funerals that I've been working with, We do a lot of death literacy or death education work so that people can actually know what they don't know and start making those decisions um, ahead of time and having those difficult conversations. Mm. Yeah, because I suppose a funeral home is not somewhere you generally think about going when everything's all going along swimmingly. It's not something that's kind of 
in, I suppose, most people's um, heads of, oh, yeah, next week I need to pop down to the funeral home and, you know, <laughs> see what I can learn. So um, even getting people there, you know, that must be a bit challenging. Well, we the, our challenge currently has been that we have not had a space to actually um, operate from. So the first, um, we, we need to sort of go back in time a little bit to before I even met you, to 2018, um, where the opportunity to bring tender funerals to the Canberra region landed in front of me. And it came into my radar because in 2015, I had done some training called Death Walker Training. And I came to Death Walker Training because I realised that my grandmother was getting old and I needed to face the inevitable and and I needed to know more about it. And I came to that through birth. So all these layers that lead lead to a journey, for me, it started with, with birth. And as a birth doula, I'd been um, working on a concept called the birth map and how you can map out different pathways and considerations when you don't know exactly what's going to happen but I can consider these things in advance. And I was reading the novels um, that became the, the program called The Midwife. There's four books in the, um, in the set that led to that program. And the fourth book is called In the Midst of Life, and it's actually about the time that the author spent in palliative care, not as a midwife but as a palliative nurse. And she talked about the parallels between birthing and dying and how both are overly medicalized and dehumanized. We outsource it. We don't think about it until the moment is happening. And so this can lead to trauma or um, difficulties in grief, that sort of thing. So I borrowed all the books on death from the library here in Braidwood to um, to the alarm of the librarian. He's like, Catherine, are you okay? <laughs> what is this obsession with death? Do you usually borrow the birth book? I was like, oh no, same, same thing, different end of, end of life. It's, um, yeah, just, just a fascination at the moment. And that led me to Zenith Virago, who, who, um, authored a book about different, um, ways that people die. So from tragic accidents, death at their own hand, to old age, to illness, and the stories of how people processed these. And it just sort of opened up all these questions about, yeah, what if? What if one of those um, ends was on my um, on my card? And so it's like, an, like a choose-your-own-adventure where there's all these multiple endings and different ways to get there, but you don't know which one you're going to end up on. So I wanted to sort of try and figure out how I could know and be ready for whichever ending would come. And so I did the Death Walker training. And at the Death Walker training, I met the most incredible young woman. I think she would have been about 21, maybe 22 at the time that I met her. And she was working as a funeral director and had been working in the funeral industry since she was 17 when she went for work experience at her local funeral home and just found that this was her calling. And she spoke of tender funerals at this death walker training. And I thought, this sounds fascinating. Tell us more. And she talked about how it's not for profit. It's community led that it's um, not about um, ticking boxes but about having conversations and working out what's meaningful for each family that comes into the space. And it would have been, yeah, three years later in 2018, Tender had been established down in Port Kembla um, from 2016 and we were watching that unfold and thinking every community needs a Tender. How is this not the way we're doing death? It was just so beautiful and meaningful and connected and it was what the family needed it to be. So when um, a chap by the name of Shane said, hey, death walkers, anyone want to get a tender funerals happening in Canberra? It was the easiest yes I've ever said. I didn't quite realise what I was saying yes to <laughs> at the time. Yeah, it sounds but, big. 
but it had to happen. It's like, yes, let's make this happen. And so the the first um, phrase into this um, happening was uh, uh, Shane and uh, a beautiful woman called Vicky Hingston Jones, who I'd met at the Death Walker train or done the Death Walker training with, but had met through birth and had known her for many years. And so the three of us started on this journey of working with um, Jenny Briscoe Hoff, who started the tender down in Illawarra, to see how we could make it happen. And that then led to uh, conversations with the Snow Foundation, asking for some support to um, help us action it. What, what do we need to do um, with uh, Social Ventures Australia, which is a, um, a supportive uh, organisation that helps not-for-profits figure out what they're doing. And we started to put together an action plan for bringing Tender to Canberra. And once that conversation started, other places around Australia started going, we want one too. How do we make this work? So they created a social franchise. So it's unlike a Jim's Mowing franchise where you can sort of buy the, the IP, this needed to be different. We needed to stay connected. There needed to be something that ensured that this was community-based and really hold that um, that model to its integrity. So massive conversations of figuring out how we could make it bigger without losing that community um, at the core. And so that, uh, that took you know, another year or two of sort of fine-tuning what that would look like. And then that led to 2021, which is when I met you at that um, business um, workshop, which was, I think it was 10 weeks, um, over five sessions over 10 weeks, we met in mm. the Seabrin in, in Canberra, which is the Canberra Innovators, and went through uh, all these key things about how to work out what your selling points are, what makes you different from others, how to do a business model, um, how to get the – for us, it was for fundraising. For others, it would have been about marketing. Um, so working out how um, you could uh, make make your business um, really fly, and that really helped us learn some skills to take us to the next level, all the while hunting for a site. We would run death cafes where we would invite people to meet meet us at cafes and talk death over tea and cake, and which is which was wonderful. Lots of good conversations happening, but oh, we really needed a site so that we could actually offer funerals and um, have much bigger gatherings on site to do workshops and um, seminars, whatever the whatever the community um, demanded, we would make it happen. You want a choir? Sure, let's have a choir. Let's just do it. And so the property hunt um, began in um, 2018 tentatively, kind of at least getting a lay of the land. And um, by 2021, we were very seriously hunting property. We had backing from a uh, so CIFA, uh, which is a social enterprise fundraising authority, oh dear, um, <laughs> but it specialises in loans to not-for-profits and we had had a really awesome um, amount of fundraising happening thanks to the Snow Foundation and uh, Braidwood Community Bank and uh, the Posse Foundation and uh, the Hands Across Canberra who for the last um, three years have included us as one of their charities and have been absolutely supporting our, our um, coming to Canberra. And the, oh, we, like, we had it. We had the money. We were ready to go. We just didn't have a property. And I know way too much about Canberra's zoning <laughs> and property. Oh, wow. Our challenge was we need a mortuary. It's so important that a tender funerals has a mortuary on site. What that allows us to do is keep the person with us at all times so that the family can access their person whenever they want to. And the, t the tender model allows families to be as attached 
or as unattached as they need to be, but they always have the option of um, being involved in whatever steps of the way they want to be, including a washing and dressing of their person. And so that meant we needed a mortuary on site, which of course meant we were limited to the industrial areas for a site. And we'd found a site in Queanbeyan um, but didn't have our funds quite ready and got um, lost that site over somebody else who had their funds ready. And then that would have been at the end of 2019. And I don't know what happened. That um, like So much happened the summer of 2019-20 um, that is huge. But mm-hmm. one of the things that happened was that property prices pretty much doubled overnight. And so the funds that we had secured suddenly weren't enough and so we spent the next um, three years chasing property prices trying to get our funding ready to cover um, property prices I went to auctions where the opening bid was well above market value and I, I couldn't compete with that I couldn't commit to a loan that was then going to mean that I would have to charge funeral um, prices to cover the cost of that loan that would then make the cost of the funeral it's just too expensive Mm. so getting the balance point between affordable and meaningful it was such a challenge and about a year ago the snow foundation really came on board with us as a a major supporter and um, they found us a site and it's not in an industrial area it's in a beautiful peaceful space and it's bigger than we could ever have hoped for and we will be able to do all of the things choirs seminars as well as the funerals happening for families and um we will be operational by the middle of this year oh well congratulations on all of that it sounds like a massive amount of work on yes fm we've been listening to Catherine bell talk about the tender funerals uh model of um affordable non-for-profit Funerals and and the hunt for a for a site in in Canberra. Um, are you allowed to tell me what suburb it's in? It's in Fairbairn. Fairbairn, which is near the airport. Oh, near the airport. Okay, so at Fairbairn near the airport, and um, yeah, and so and you're listening to Kath on Women's Voices. So thanks so much, um, Catherine, for that um, explanation of everything. So it sounds like an absolutely. Well, a task that involved a lot of patience and a lot of, mm, what's the word I want? Uh, perseverance. <laughs> perseverance yeah, on your part because yeah. I think many people would have just given it up faced with all those challenges. So do you have a, a team that you work with doing this? It's not just you doing it on your own. Definitely not just me on my own. We have an incredible board of um, very motivated, dedicated people, all volunteers um, who have very persistently um, worked towards making this happen. And we have uh, a woman called Catherine Prosser who is just becoming our first employee as general manager and she she is going to be project managing the fit-out of our building and then becoming our first general manager when we're operational and she is a driving force of incredibleness. Uh, I, I could not have hoped for a better team of, um, we've got the different skill sets that we need to make sure that we can be successful. We've got um, a professional, uh, unpaid um, but skilled board um, working behind the scenes to make sure that we're ticking all the, all the appropriate boxes to make sure that we're, um, compliant with all of the appropriate, um, you know, bureaucratic things that we need to, to do. And um, we've got awesome relationships connected with um, the Bradle Community Bank, Hands Across Canberra and the Snow Foundation uh, that are continuing as we um, you know, march forward to operations. And and there are a team of volunteers in the in the wings as well that help with the, the death literacy and then going forward they will be supporting the families um, with the funerals and the driving the car to do the pickup and um, if families want to have their person at home 
um, they can do that for up to five days and we have a cold plate so that they can um, you know, keep the person um, in the appropriate way. Mm. Yeah, um, I was wondering about that as soon as you said having them at home. Um, I was wondering how you deal with that. I was in uh, Serbia earlier in the year and I ended up going to a funeral, which wasn't planned, um, but my cousin's neighbour had died overnight while I was there and it was in a small town and, and they had a rule that, that people had to be buried within 24 hours because there are no facilities, you know, like that to keep them cool and there's no mortuary or anything in the town and, and the person went to just a little building that was in the graveyard basically overnight and had to be buried the next day. So, yeah, so it's like a big uh, cold plate that, that fits in a bed or something, is it? Uh, yeah, it's about the size of the torso um, and and it just lays underneath the person. Um, and, it, yeah, it's a refrigerated um, mm. plate and, and legally you can um, have your person at home for up to five days. Mm. Um, as long as they're kept cool. And that might happen if it's an expected death. Um, if it's an unexpected death, the person would be with the coroner. So you wouldn't have that option if if it was an unexpected death. Mm, mm. It's almost uh, getting to be a foreign thing, isn't it, uh, dying at home? I mean, most people used to just die at home. And now most people, from what I hear, die in hospitals at about three o'clock in the morning alone yeah 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 it's definitely um it's a bit like birth a lot of people um a lot of women for birth but people for for death the um the hope is that you have a natural um dying at home with people that you love but for most of us we have a more medicalized um death either because it's come at the end of an illness or um, because a bit like in birth, we like to um, uh, numb the experience somewhat. We've we've sort of enculturated ourselves to to want to distance any um, perceived discomfort. Um, but there are some people who are quite comfortable with a certain amount of pain in if that means they can experience the death fully. So it's really good to have a think about that in advance because the default is a medicalized model. And that also looks like death not being an option. So if you can be kept alive, you will be kept alive in the default um, model. So that's where an advanced care directive can be very important because that's where the do not resuscitate um, wish can be expressed. And that can be um, quite detailed. If this is the circumstances, um, then you must cease attempting um, uh, to keep the person alive. And I do not resuscitate. There are several levels um, that you can you can you can go this far, and then that's the end. Um, if if that's not working, then you can't continue. And so, if that's not expressed, then the medical um, carers have a, an obligation to bring you back if they can so it's really important if you um if your evaluation of quality of life is that you would rather die than um just be kept alive for the purposes of being alive then you can ask for nature to take its course but what does that actually look like how do we support that and what can we do to be ready for that time and that might look like um, palliative care and comfort measures. So one of the things that um, Tender will be doing is partnering with the palliative care and advanced care directive specialists um, in in our region to bring these conversations to the front and let people know what's the paperwork. There is so much paperwork around death. <laughs> so let's get our paperwork sorted and let's get these conversations happening so that our families can actually support us in the way that is um, aligned with our values when our time comes. Mm. And so this advanced planning, is this something that a general everyday for-profit funeral home, would they help in this kind of situation or are they just sort of more come and see us once you're dead? Uh, yeah, generally it's more come and see us once you're dead, but you they 
often are more aware of um, things that are in the death space. So you could definitely ask them and if they know, they'll tell you. If they don't know, they'll, they might know who to refer you on to. But the better places to look for this kind of information is with the Advanced Care Planning um, uh, Organisation, which name escapes me right now. But all these details are on the tender website mm. and the um, and there's palliative care and talking to a palliative care nurse, we've got a, um, a a bingo card of things to help people. Have you done this? Tick your bingo card off and one of them <laughs> is, have you spoken to a palliative care nurse? And having that con- conversation with someone who has sat alongside um, the dying can be really helpful to understanding what that process um, can look like. And there's some fabulous podcasts you can listen to out there that talk about what the dying process looks like, what your options are. And and it's done in a way that's it's not horribly morbid and, and, and depressing. It, it's actually really insightful and it's called Good Science Communication and understanding what your options are just empowers you at the at the time you need to make those decisions. Mm, yeah, no, it's it's all fantastic, and it's just so true that you don't want to think about these things because you don't want to think about your parents dying or or anyone really, even though you know as your parents get older that it's going to happen. <laughs> but it's still something. Yep. It's like. No, I'll think about that later, or I don't want to think about that just yet, or we'll worry about that next year or something. It's just so, so easy to not address that um, large elephant in the room, as you may may call it, isn't it? Um, yeah. And so, Catherine, what's your kind of uh, particular role in the in the um, tender funerals, you know, organisation or? It's a it's an organisation, yeah. Uh, yeah, or yeah, it's a it's a not for profit company. Company, um, yeah. So yeah. we, uh, I'm the chair of uh-huh. the board, and um, and so my yeah, it's a volunteer um, role, and all the all the board members are volunteers, and um, we will be overseeing the uh, the governance side of the um, the company, and our general manager. We'll be overseeing the operations um, side, and that's all supported by Tender Funerals Australia, which is the umbrella that now sits above all the new sites um, that are popping up around the country. And the network that we that we work with, we share um, ideas, we share um, information about how we can put best practice in, into practice. So things like. Um, empathy and ethics and you know, compassionate care. We have a credo that guides everything that we do and and everyone's always staying connected and is well supported so that if we do have um, a difficult um, or a challenging situation, whether that's looking for your building or actually working with families or um having to deal with uh, a challenging, how do I get the funds to even get started in the first place? Uh, no one has to reinvent the, the wheel. We're all there to help each other um, because that's what communities do. Mm. It's a beautiful model, absolutely beautiful model. So it's a national um, organisation then. And did the idea from it, is, that, is it originally from overseas or did the person from the Illawarra come up with the whole thing? There is a fabulous documentary called Tender, the documentary, which um, shows how it came about. And essentially the community down in Port Kembla were getting really frustrated with the cost of funerals. Um, The the lower socioeconomic um, aspects of the community, people were going into debt to just cover basic costs for, you know, the coffin, um, the the cost of the cremation itself. Like there's these fixed costs that you just can't, um, you, you can't make them cheaper. You can't not pay some of these costs. So Tender started initially to help um, those families that couldn't afford um, to, to have a basic funeral. And a, a big thing that's been happening um, in the last 10 years is we've now got direct cremation, which is the fastest growing option for um, body disposal. 
which is basically pick your person up and have them cremated and then that's the end of it. There's no there's no funeral or ceremony or ritual around it and that's actually um, psychologically not a great way to move into healthy bereavement and and when people are making those decisions because of money, that that's not very fair. Why should only the wealthy be able to 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 bereave properly? So the and uh, the comparisons that we can have from um, last uh, 2022, the average cost of a funeral in New South Wales was um, $10,500, um, and so that would be for a um, the you know, the funeral costs, not the actual burial costs, because burial pots can be ten thousand dollars on their own. Um, but for fun- for tender, the average cost for the tender funeral sites, um, which were in Illawarra and the Mid North Coast, was um, four and a half thousand dollars. So they were able to reduce the costs quite significantly without having to compromise on having that service. And um, the the average um, saving was yeah six thousand dollars, which mm. is enormous. Mm. And and we can do that because we've got volunteers supporting it, so that keeps um, some of the overhead costs down. But we don't put markups onto things. So if it costs us, um, like for example, we've got cardboard coffins available at the moment. They cost us one hundred and fifty dollars, so we sell them for one hundred and fifty dollars. And um, and that's that can be a significant saving for, for families of uh, making sure that they've got access to the different um, uh, types of caskets, the different uh, understanding of what's available and what, what, what the pricing points are. And so the families can work out for themselves what's going to be best mm. um, without having to lose out on the ritual. And because we um, now we'll, we'll have our beautiful site up and running middle of the year, those families, instead of having to have their person picked up and taken away for a direct cremation, because they can be on our site, the families can actually come in and do the washing and dressing or have a viewing or whatever whatever feels right for them, um, that's still available to them. They don't have to make that decision and then that's done. They can say, oh, no, I don't want to have a look at the body. Uh, I, I don't need to do that. But the option is still there if they change their mind. And they've got, they've got more time to process what's happened and what, what they need to do in that space. Mm. And so on YesFM, uh, we've been talking to Catherine Bell about funerals, death, dying, and the amazing tender funerals non-for-profit option which makes funerals just uh, much easier for for people. So you mentioned cardboard boxes for $150. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure that's way cheaper than your cheapest wood coffin. And so you mentioned to me earlier that um, – you know, that there's uh, many options uh, based on sustainable principles. So obviously the cardboard box is one. What other kind of uh, disposal options, as you described them, um, do people have these days? Well, at the moment um, we have basically burial or cremation um, as your standard options, cremation being fire cremation um, and burial having... um, but right from the vault, which which requires you to be embalmed because you're not actually buried, you're installed into the, the vault or the mausoleum. Um, or you can be in a lawn cemetery or um, a standard, uh, you know, an old-fashioned cemetery, um, which is a standard burial, or there's green burial. The green burial option is um, becoming increasingly available as more councils are starting to open up Um areas in their cemeteries that will allow for a green burial. The beauty of a green burial is that it um, allows you to be buried in a more environmentally friendly way. So this might look like a shroud instead of a coffin or a casket. It might look like a cardboard um, casket or it might look like um, a, a, a pine box that's going to um, break down very, very quickly. But the idea with the green burial is that you become in contact with the earth very quickly. 
and then your burial is not quite as deep so that all the microbes can get to you and do their thing and um, you are at one with the soil in much in a much more quick way and that's um, that's more like being composted than be, than decaying whereas in a deeper standard burial the body decays rather than um, composts or decomposes so that's a an interesting scientific um, mm. Probably putting a vision in people's head that might be uncomfortable, but uh, that's science. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that's right, and and better for the soil, isn't it? To compost. I like how you described it as being at one with the earth. I think that's a good tagline there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, so, when it comes to rituals and celebrations and things, what what um, kind of things do you think make a funeral? I know that it's that it's all up to the to the individual and the family involved, but are there basic things that a ritual or a rite should cover um, for a funeral? There is um, some understanding psychologically that be, spending time with the person after they have died is um, helpful for our brain to acknowledge that the person is gone. So being able to see the person dead allows our brain to say, yes, the person is dead. Whereas if we haven't seen that, a part of our brain can still say, maybe, maybe they were wrong. Maybe maybe it didn't happen like that. And so that can actually be um, more, make the grief process more complex. So when we know that when a body has not been returned, so missing at sea or um, during war times when the bodies um, weren't returned to Australian soil, the families that were left with just the, uh, you know, missing in action or, you know, that sort of um, information, they don't grieve as um, healthily as or comfortably as they could if they had had actually been able to see and witness the the person afterwards and and that's not something everybody wants to to do because culturally we have learned to not do that to rush the body away so we at tender we always make that an option for people um and nine out of ten of them actually come back and say actually yes i would like to help with the wash and dress or I would like to um, sit with the person for a little while because we've slowed the process down enough that they've been able to say, okay, this is what I need to do. And then we can have conversations about what was meaningful to your person, what is meaningful to you, was there ever a discussion about what should happen? And so then we can start to create uh, a ceremony or a gathering or some sort of um, ritual and the funeral itself, um, generally um, what we do um, in our culture, and of course there's no rules, so all new ideas will be um, supported, but the, the general process is that there's a eulogy or a discussion or a, a speech that talks about what the person was like in their youth, remembering stories from their adulthood, key things that they've done in their life, and then the slideshow um, of photos and some music that goes with that, and these are these are really popular elements of of a service that help people to remember and let the tears fall. Particularly if someone's been having trouble um, letting go, um, a good funeral will have you crying at the start and laughing at the end um, as you remember um, the person. If you know if that's the appropriate. Um, for that person or it has you coming to the end of the funeral with an acceptance and an understanding of um, of that person's um, death. So particularly if it's been a younger person who has died, the um, that grieving process can be much harder as you think it's, oh, the, the unfairness of it all or why did that have to happen? So there's a lot more questions. Mm. So that that process helps us to really acknowledge what's happened and and help us to understand why so that those rituals are uh, are are important for the letting go and the acceptance of what's happened yeah i think they are so important and of course 
as you say, some people just choose or some families just choose to have a direct cremation and no service. But I think that our life generally in this society is is fairly sadly lacking in rituals, really, um, compared to many other societies. Um, like I'm just thinking about, you know, in some countries where they have a lot of sound and wailing and things like that at funerals yeah. as a way to release grief. And you don't really sort of see that, you know, at your average um, Aussie uh, funeral. <laughs> no, um, that's right. And there, there, is a, there is a social um, a social expectation that will sit around around that funeral. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. That, exactly. That you'll just be sort of quiet and respectful, basically, is is what um, I think comes across. And I know that that's the, that the people usually have a wake, and that's where people can also, you know, express that kind of thing. Um, although every wake I've ever been to has um, not really involved that. It's mostly just tea and cake and chat. Catherine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on to SFM to talk to us about um, death, dying and funerals. We've got a little bit uh, more time. I just wanted to ask you a little bit more, actually, about the death walker training because that is just such an unusual term that I don't think many people will have heard, death walker. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about what you did in that and what that involved and, and what that meant to you? Yeah, it was it was a it was three days um, intensive training, and we've actually got Zenith coming back to Canberra next month. But all places are full. Um, she does have an online version if anyone wanted to to pursue it. But it it starts by covering the dying process and how to support the dying, and then it looks at the death after death care, and then the funerals and all the different bits of paperwork that are involved. So death walker, it's um, you might be more familiar with the term doula, um, like a birth doula. So it's similar to, to that, but at the other end of life, a death walker can walk you through, can walk with you, can guide you, having um, been you know, come to understand those pathways and help you work out which are your pathways and where you want to go in that journey. And they're non-medical, they're often just community members. Uh, It might be someone in your family. Some people do the death walker training just so they can be a better support for their their family, Um, particularly if they know they're going to be looking after their parents or um, perhaps a sick family member um, more intensely, so it, it can be really helpful to have that um, understanding of how to do that more confidently, knowing where to find support for yourself so that you can um, respite that sort of thing. So being able to know who your supports are, who you can talk to, where you can get information. So the Death Walker training really helped me to reconcile some of the more medicalized and dehumanized approaches that we have just come to expect, you know, as a standard in society and allow our family to be able to, when my grandmother did start dying, to actually, the world stopped and we just sat with her and had the vigil with her and had a better understanding of how long that process would take and how we can all support each other in that process. And so what, could have been a, a traumatic or difficult experience became a beautiful, tender moment of patience and understanding and then acceptance. And it, it doesn't protect you from grief. You still feel deep sadness, but you can understand better what's happened. Mm. And did, so your grandmother died after you'd done that training? Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah right. later that later that year um Uh end of 2015 and and then it was for so the dying part we did quite well or she she did a good job of that um (laughs) just like like when a woman has it has a baby and oh she was delivered well from the obstetrician like no she birthed that baby she did that when we die we do our own dying and um the the um funeral though was really disappointing like our our part of the funeral our eulogy and our slideshow that was awesome and the wake was beautiful but there was a real sense of being rushed 
you know, in one door, you've got your time limit for the service and then you go out another door and the other family's coming in ready for their, you know, the next funeral is being lined up. And it just felt so conveyor belt and, um, and time limited. Uh, so that was where with the tender story, when that started um, becoming an option and talking to tender, I did work experience down at the Illawarra site and saw how they did things and I thought, yeah, this is this is how how we should be doing this. We should have this option in Canberra, where they will often um, book a, a double length service, um, because even though the service itself might still be the same length, usually, you know, usually it's sort of within the hour, forty five minutes to an hour, um, but you book the the longer time slot so that the family can arrive slower and leave slower, and there isn't that sense of having to get out of the way for the next funeral, little things like that, those details that we hadn't been made aware of. I just found that the the tender approach was actually being able to know what questions to ask and what options were available. And the beautiful thing about the tender way is the more that the community becomes aware of what their options are, they'll ask that of any funeral home and other funeral homes will start being better able to provide those services. So we'll start to see a, a cultural change as the community becomes more death literate. literate. Mm. That's um, yeah, really fascinating and, and how wonderful that you could sort of use that knowledge to help with your grandmother's um, passing. Did she die at home or in hospital? No, she was in, in um, a nursing home, but we were able to um, have the room uh, like the whole family was able to be in the room with her and the funeral, uh, the palliative team um, made us lunch. They didn't even, they didn't actually ask us if we wanted lunch. They just saw that we needed lunch and they said, right, your lunch is ready now. And they'd laid it all out in the in the dining room of the nursing home away from the other um, uh, uh I don't want to say inmates, um, residents. Residents, yeah. <laughs> residents. <laughs> and so they, they set a table up for our family um, in a quiet spot and and just sat us down and said, and now eat. And while you're doing that, we're going to attend to um, some um, needs, which were you know, turning her body and just making sure that her um, the, the medication that she was on was at the right level and just doing some of the things that Nanny had said she did not want us to see um, and she, she was happy for the, the care team to attend to those intimate needs, but she didn't want us to to see those aspects of her care. Mm. And then once that was done, we were able to go back in and, and sit with her and my brother would play the guitar and we sang for a bit and um, she, she would occasionally be lucid, but otherwise she was mostly drifting away and, so we had a lovely day with her and it was maybe, that was the Saturday and she died on the Monday um, and with just my mum and her, um, uh, my mum's cousin in attendance, sort of just sitting quietly with her. And it was really well supported. So even though, um, like to have her, to have a person at home dying, you do need a really good support team around you because there are care aspects, um, intimate care that needs to be done, that if you don't know how to do that well, um, it, it, it can be more distressing for everybody. So having a good care team behind you at that time can be very helpful. And for most of us now, we don't know what to do. Um, oh, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say it's like a lost knowledge because, I mean, the the you know, the elders members they used to just sort of live at home you know before old old um uh, what's the word i want aged care resident homes and everything and right. and you know everyone had their their mum or their dad or their mother-in-law or whatever at home with them and then people just knew what to do and they still do know what to do in a lot of countries but in this culture in you know we just we've lost that knowledge and i think lost that knowledge about birth too which is why most people even if they probably you know, don't like the idea of a medicalised birth, they probably go for that route because we don't 
have that that knowledge. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been lost correct. as well. So I suppose so we're hoping, hoping to reclaim that knowledge. That's mm. our that's our mission to bring it back to the community and and help empower people to 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 step back confidently into those spaces. Yeah, whether it's birth or death, I'm on both missions, <laughs> <laughs> both ends. Well, thank you so much, uh, Catherine, for coming in today and talking to us on SFM on Women's Voices. It's been um, fascinating to learn a little bit about death and dying. Um, so thanks for joining us. And if people just want to know more, they, I suppose they can just Google Tender Funerals. That's right, yep, tenderfunerals.com.au. And okay. there's so much information to explore. Easy. All right. Well, thanks so much. We're going to go out with a little bit of Paul Kelly before the news. And I will see you all next week. Don't start me talking Or I'll tell everything I know Don't start me talking I'll spill the things for sure Right before your eyes I blow it all open wide Don't start me talking Don't stop me talking